same span of time. We talked about characters. Uh, the main character is always God, but there's, there's positive and negative role models. But we also just talk about the, the actions of God a lot in the Old Testament, especially relative to the new. God is very active. God is very involved. I think I've heard one commentator say he gets his hands dirty. He gets in the dirt with, with people in the Old Testament, and this is the way God is described. And so the Old Testament, very God-centered, which leads us, and we said some of our major themes from these books. Guess what? They all have to do with God. Talking about God's sovereignty with just his power. Uh, as it's demonstrated through the nations, through the leaders, through the people, uh, God's presence in, in the covenant and uh, his promises with the people in terms of there being his people and him abiding with them. Uh, we see God selecting leaders, guiding the people in very different ways. So all of these ways are just, um, all of these things are just ways God is very active in the Old Testament. So what I want to do this morning is... We're going to look at 2 Kings 5, and I teased this last week, and so I'm sure some of you went and you really, really studied 2 Kings 5, and you're like, okay, I want to see what, I, what we're getting at, what we're getting to, and some of you are going to open 2 Kings 5 for the first time today. So I prepared a little bit, but what I want to kind of do is mimic as if you and I were just one-on-one -on -one studying this passage, kind of coming to it out of the blue, kind of coming to it fresh. So I, I didn't do a ton of... Obviously, I prepared. We got an hour here, so I've obviously prepared enough stuff. But I didn't uh, didn't get every single commentary I could think of in the world on it because I want it to kind of feel like we're naturally moving through it for the first time. Again, like if you and I were just sitting down studying it, we were going, okay. So what does Second Kings five teach me uh, today? What can it do for me as a Christian today? So the bulk of Second Kings five, at least the story we're going to focus on. Is probably verse 1 through 14 is what we'll spend the most time on. But the 15 through 27 are kind of the sequel or sort of the wrap-up of that story. So we'll probably spend a few minutes with that as well. But what we'll do is we'll read through it. And as I'm reading, we'll kind of get out some observations. Uh, if you were with me on our Wednesday night Bible class going through some of Paul's letters, it'll be pretty similar to that this week. Where we'll read it. As I'm reading, I'll just throw out some comments. If you have some comments, you can shout them out. You can raise your hand. Whatever works best for you. And then I'll try to save about 15 minutes at the end when we're done just reading through it. And I'll sort of talk about maybe some bigger points I would make. We'll look at some similar passage or maybe some relevant uh, related scriptures. And then if we have time, I'll, I'll even sort of go into a little bit of how I would approach this text if I was preaching on it or if I was preparing to preach on it. So that's sort of the game plan for this morning. So if anyone is turned there already, someone go ahead for us and read the first five verses, that first paragraph of 2 Kings 5. That is 2 Kings 5, verse 1 through 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So, turn my mic off. So, if we're studying this, I said the first thing we're going to do is look at context. 
So someone throw out some things that you know or you think are happening in around the time of 2 Kings, in the beginning of 2 Kings. Let's start with, the book is called 2 Kings. Who is king? Anyone know? That's really not as important as who is not king, because we are in the period of the broken kingdom. We are after David, we are after Solomon, and we are through a, a series of kings. I can't remember exactly who it is in this passage, but what you really need to know is that the king is, not, is no longer an obedient king. He's not a godly king. If you, if you have those timelines that we gave out a couple weeks ago, we're, we're in that series of just wicked kings that are the new king every other year, and none of them really obey God. Other thoughts or observations from the first few verses there? Who do you think the main character, just from reading the text, who do we think the main character this is going to be? Naaman. And we can guess that because the king of Israel is just sort of references the king of Israel, whereas Naaman, this guy, is actually named. Uh, if you have a Bible that has headings, it kind of tells you. We're going to be talking about Naaman being healed of leprosy. So there's a little bit of a spoiler what happens to Naaman. Naaman is also, it says, a commander of the army of king of Syria. And if you remember some of those maps that we've been looking at, or if your Bible has maps, I encourage you to use them. I'm a visual person. I don't know if you are. But Syria is probably to the northeast of Israel. It's sort of in that promised land area. It would have been part of the United Kingdom at one time, but it's obviously not Israel. It's not Judah. It's not the people we think of as God's chosen people, but he's close enough that he would have been exposed to God. He would have heard about this Yahweh God. He would have known a little bit about what was going on with the God of the Israelites as he probably would have thought of it. Something else, just I'll say this because it's in there. Anytime your Bible has Lord in all caps like that in, uh, as it does in verse 1, that is the Yahweh name of God, the, the proper name of God, the full name of God, the divine name, I believe the Jews also called it. And so it tells us that the Lord had given victory to Syria. So Naaman, he's a Syrian. We know he at least has some kind of knowledge of God. We're not really totally sure what his spiritual relationship status looks like, but clearly there is some sort of, there's something going on with him and the Lord, even though Naaman is not uh, a Judean, he is not an Israelite. So that's just a few observations right off the top there. We talked about how the king is not godly. When we were talking about these books, if you remember, in times where the king is no longer obedient to God, who is the voice of God typically? Yes, I don't know who said it. A lot of people said it. Good. Remembered something from a few weeks ago. I was very glad. Or, truthfully, if I say, who is a mouthpiece for God? The prophets is generally a good answer at any point in time. The prophets are always mouthpieces for God. But we talked about how, especially in Samuel and Kings, right, when David and Solomon are, are big and they're involved, we hear from them a lot. But when the kings begin to fall, we start hearing from the prophets a lot. And we'll talk about that kind of toward the end when we apply this to today as well. But... So we, we have the prophet referenced already in our first chapter. He's, he's going to go out and see the prophet. Any other observations that you guys notice in those first few verses already? Naaman must have been pretty trustworthy because his master let him go. So his master lets him go. And then what's interesting is Naaman is the commander of the armies of the king. And he doesn't take his advice from the king. He, we kind of think of him as probably a decision maker, but he doesn't come up with this. But it says a little girl, a little girl who had been carried off from one of the land of Israel. Verse 2 is telling us essentially she's a captive Israelite from back in the day. Not the, the full-on exile captives. That hasn't happened yet. But she, she's a, a prisoner of war essentially. 
And she is the one who kind of relays this to the mistress, who relays it to Naaman, that, well, there's a prophet in Samaria. In Samaria or there's not a prophet in Samaria, but there is one in Israel. And she even says, the prophet, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman trusts this, this kind of, I would, I would say, this random girl. I'm not sure how he knows this person, but he says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do that. That sounds, that sounds promising. And so what he does is he writes a letter to his king for the king to allow him to go. And so we'll read a few more verses of their story. Someone wants to read the next chunk for us. Uh, if someone wants to read, we'll say verses 6, 7, and 8. Hey, Sharon. Oh. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. What lepers commit to isolation? Certainly, if he was in Jerusalem, if he was anywhere near all of that, it was not uncommon in areas outside of really the Holy Land. Um, Syrians didn't didn't really take it kind of the same way that the Israelites did. But yes, I mean they were not really. You notice when it tells us about Naaman, it says he's a great man. He's done all these things, but he's got leprosy. And it almost tells us that as if everything else he's done has been canceled out because he has this disease that he can't help. Um, so it's certainly a big deal. Um, and if they were obedient to the law in the way that they probably should have been, yeah, they probably would have put him out. But we'll see that that's, that plays a role as well. We'll get to that. That's a complicated question because there's, they've guessed that there's probably at least a dozen different skin maladies that the Bible just kind of calls leprosy. And very, most of the time, it's probably not what we actually call leprosy today. So, yes, but also no. <laughs> Possibly. It might have been, it might not have been. Um, which, of course, is the impetus behind them being in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So you see, we can get a lot. Even just even we have, we don't know what's going on in chapter four. We haven't figured out what's going on later in the chapter yet. But we can get a lot just from this quick dialogue between Naaman and this little girl and what's going on. We can already kind of see a lot of their character showing up. So we're gonna, so someone go ahead with verse six and go ahead and read verse six, seven, and eight. So, just to kind of summarize, that dialogue might be hard to follow if you are reading it for the first time. But essentially, essentially, the, the king of Syria, Naaman's boss, 
gives him a letter and says, you know what, this girl's heard of this prophet. We're going to go on the word of this random Hebrew girl, and we're going to send you to this, this crazy guy over this place called Israel who might be able to heal you. He sends him there. And when we're there, we're introduced to the most faithless person we have met in the entire story so far in verse 7, the king of Israel. Which, by the way, again, like I was saying, we don't really know who the king is without digging into the context and the timeline and all that. Verse 7 tells you about all you need to know about why the king is not important. Again, Naaman is mentioned by name. Uh, Elisha gets mentioned by name. The king is only referenced in this passage as the king of Israel, and I think verse 7 is why. He's, he's probably the most faithless person we have met yet. Because he gets there, and he gets this letter from the king of Syria, and he thinks this is some weird political ploy to try and entrap him or start some fight with him. He, he has no care for this guy being a, a, a leper who's trying to be healed. He has no interest in what their belief and faith in God is. He says, ah, why is this guy sending to me? I think he's just trying to start a fight with me. And then Elisha, the man of God, a good little introduction. He says, let him, referring to Naaman, come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. If you didn't already, that is something I would underline or highlight in your Bible if you're someone who does that. Um, that's one of those lines that we read and I just think it kind of sounds powerful. If I'm imagining the movie playing out in my head, that's kind of a climactic point or a dramatic scene. With the king of Israel, who if you remember we've been studying during this time, is supposed to be a representative of, of God's word to the people. He's supposed to be godly and righteous. He's supposed to be obedient to the law. He's supposed to be the one who upholds the law. But of course, the king is the one who's acting relatively faithless. And Elisha, Elisha the prophet, is saying, you know what? You bring this leper guy from Syria to me because I want him to know that there is a prophet in Israel. He's essentially saying, I want him to know that God speaks. Even though we have a king who is faithless, even though our nation's got a lot of mess going on and we probably got a lot of problems, he says, I want this man to know there is a prophet in Israel. Other, other thoughts from those few verses there? Okay, we'll keep going. We've got a lot to cover, so that's all right. Uh, someone go with, well, I'll read a couple of verses for us and then we'll throw it back around the horn. I'll begin reading in verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, -par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, so he turned and went away in a rage. And someone go ahead and finish off the section for us and read verse 13 and 14. And his servants came near to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So, we'll go to you guys first, see what you guys think about this so far. So there's a lot of different ways I think we can go with this here. What do y'all think about that passage? There you go. That's a really easy way to look at it for today's lens, right? Absolutely. Mr. Carl, yes, sir. Yeah, he pointed out that 
If he'd have told you to do something you wanted to do, you would have went and done it right away. So shouldn't you do what he told you to do anyway? That is a super interesting line because I think this is, this is one of those maybe human behavior or human situation, social dynamic pictures from the Old Testament that I think perfectly translates how this would go today. Is he shows up and he sees this great man of God and he says, uh, you know, he's expecting him to call down fire like Elijah did with the Baals, right? Maybe do something dramatic and crazy and powerful. And he shows up and he says, yeah, go down and bathe in the Jordan seven times. I was like, what? Jordan's the nastiest river around. All the rivers where I come from are beautiful and clean. Why would I do, why would I go wash in the Jordan? And then his friend says, you know, if he told you to do something really hard or really crazy or really insane, you'd probably do it, right? I was like, well, yeah. Like, so why would you not just do the easy thing? Why would you just not do the simple thing? And you know what, what he just said is the main thing of understanding the Bible. Go and do it. We might not understand why. But God, if God said do it, there's no, there's no questions about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. If he can create the world and create us and create everything, we should never question what's in that Bible. I completely agree with him. Completely but just agree. Go do it. We, but we see this, this great picture of I think how just our, our human minds work. Because like you said, God created the universe. God did all these things, and we want Him to work. Go ahead, Ethan. Absolutely, which is another point. He was a little frustrated. It wasn't really what he was expecting. He kind of got irritated, but he did ultimately obey. He did what God asked him to do. You know, God's easy, most simple commands bring out extraordinary results. I would very much agree. We may think that we have to have all the theatrics and all of that, but simply do his will. It's interesting because I think we see a lot of examples of that in the New Testament, right? We could think of a million different things, but I guess the one that always comes to mind for me is the various times Peter tries to demonstrate his faith in God. You know, he tries to do this really powerful thing by walking out on the water, and of course he falls and probably feels like a fool, but then we have the story where he's like, well, not everybody else can even get out of the boat, right? Probably heard that lesson before. But I think at the time, the most powerful, t- if you ask Peter, like, what was the, the greatest interaction he had with Jesus, Peter would probably think of, like, walking on water, the transfiguration or something. You know, one of those times God did something insane and powerful. I don't want to speak for God, but one of the most underlying phrases in the New Testament is probably when Jesus turns to Peter and says, you are right, and on this rock I will build my church, on this confession that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And I bet if you ask Jesus, he would say, no, Peter, you... Not denying me, but confessing my name. That's the most powerful thing you did. People are like, no, but what about the time I walked on water that you blew like a light bulb on top of a mountain and you shut down lightning or fed the 5,000? Jesus probably would have said, no, Peter, your confession of faith is probably the most important thing you did. And as Ethan pointed out, this shows his faith. It's not the coolest thing Elijah or Elisha did. You know, it's not the most dramatic. It doesn't make for the greatest movie scene, probably, compared to many other things. Like I said, if we think of the battle on the mountaintop between the god of Baal and the calling down fire and them soaking the altars in water and God still calling down fire and just something wild and dramatic and flashy. But it is just as powerful, which is the simple confession of faith and the obedience. I think I saw somebody... Yeah, I'm going to just point out, I'm not sure how old she is, but it 
Absolutely, and that, that's another one of the uh, sort of notes I made or highlights I made when we start looking at other relevant passages, we'll certainly highlight that as well. I know there's people listening online, so when we get a good discussion, I forget, but I try to repeat stuff back so everybody can hear it. But absolutely, pride getting in the way. Well, this is going to be a big thing, a, a big thing tonight. And, you know, it's going to be uh, yeah. a huge, extraordinary thing. The most powerful thing in his life, probably. Absolutely. So he obeys God and is clean. Any other thoughts? I've, I've got a lot to say about this, but I really like you guys chiming in, and most of you have said stuff I already wrote down. So. Absolutely. My, so Michael pointed out some of the other voices, like in this case Naaman's, Naaman's servant, who also who, who points out kind of his, his pride and his flaws. And you make a great point that if we look at this whole story, we've got Naaman, who we know from verse 1, is probably the main figure of the story, right? He, he's kind of the guy we expect this story to be about. And if we thought about this time period, over here we have the, the king of Israel, who we would expect to do something great. He doesn't. He turns out to be a loser. The prophet, who we know, we know Elisha's going to do something cool, right? We know Elisha. We know the name of Elisha. But look at all these little people in between, like the, the wife's maid or, or his friend, his other servant, all these people who, if they're not there, he really doesn't get clean. He doesn't probably actually follow through on his, his thought or his desire to actually put his faith in God and be clean. And I've talked about this lesson from a New Testament context that we get hung up on the Peter and the Pauls, but in every single one of Paul's letters, Paul lists like five or six other names of people who he's like, man, all these people would make what I do possible. Never underestimate your own influence. Never underestimate the influence you can have on somebody. You know, just that one conversation, that one follow-up, that one nice word when somebody is struggling, how that can maybe help them if they've got a desire to obey. And they just haven't really, I don't know how, or they haven't gotten there, they haven't figured out the path to get from A to B yet. You never know if you're, you know, that, that little girl who's the hand servant of somebody's wife who's saying, well, don't you know about this prophet over there? Yeah, I, I remember this in, <coughs> in Bible class. I was probably about really? 10 or so. Yeah, I, it brings it back to me. I remember that the, we stayed about this little girl who did this great thing. And that Naaman, his pride, how he, how he didn't do God's will, but he did God's will through this little girl and the important part she played. And I, I remember this, and I was about 10 years old. And like, but, hey, I'm a yeah. little girl. I can do something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. But he didn't have enough pride in him that he couldn't listen to the little girl or the servant. Exactly. So he was 
a flawed guy, but ultimately he is. And see, that's if you remember, we were talking about um, the, the good and bad role models, but also how sometimes some of the characters are just flawed. This is what I love about the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that, that most people that God interacts with or that Jesus interacts with, they got some problems, but some of them figured out eventually. That all I can say for most of us, right? <laughs> we, we got problems, but most of us will figure it out eventually. Um, Oh, yes, 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 yes. Right. That's a good point. It says he was the commander of the army. He'd seen battles, fought, guys probably killed, put to death with the sword, living by the sword. He's like, God wants me to go wash in this dirty river down in Israel. That's, do you understand the witch doctors and the ointments and the herb leaves I've tried to get rid of this leprosy? Washing the Jordan is not going to fix it. But We see that in the Old and New Testament, that the, the miracles are complete and undeniable, and they're not partial. They're not just a rolling back kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, I've got a, a few things I do want to mention. Um, I feel like this has been very productive, and I'm glad we did this. This is the kind of stuff I wanted to take more time to do as we go through the Bible, is just pick some passages. It's funny you mentioned you remember this from Bible class, because I picked one that kind of randomly... I, didn't, I didn't know it would be as helpful and good of a passage of study as it was. I just want to pick something that wasn't, you know, on the highlight reel or possibly on the ones you'd think, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Something a little off the beaten path, but not too much so. So just a few things I had in terms of the context. If you're, if you're looking at the bigger picture of Second Kings, if you read back, you'll see that chapter 3 and chapter 4 both have stories about Elijah. And they actually tell us a little bit about Gehazi. Gehazi comes up in the second half of the chapter. Um, to summarize, because I'm not, we're not going to get to read it today, but to summarize, Gehazi is another servant of Elisha, and he has no regard for this cleansing effect. And we actually see he tries to essentially, he tries to sort of profit off this miracle that Elisha can do. He tries to uh, seek monetary gain from what he is doing, and in turn, we see he is cursed with leprosy. And, and we'll, uh, we'll mention kind of how we can interpret that later on. 
But if we're looking at 2 Kings, some of the passages before tell us a little bit about the power of Elisha. They show a little bit about who Gehazi is. If we looked at them, we would see already that he's kind of a flawed figure. We see in 2 Kings chapter 6, the chapter afterwards, that Elisha does another great work. He recovers the axe head. He performs kind of another, we might say miracle, we might say great work, but another big thing that demonstrates faith in God and the power of God. Of course, we know 2 Kings, if you've read 2 Kings at all, 2 Kings begins with Elisha succeeding Elijah. So in the beginning of 2 Kings, Elisha is one of the bigger, figure, bigger, bigger figures. Say that three times fast. And so he, he, we, know, we, have, we know he is a trusted voice for God. We, we know he is someone who can be trusted to give us God's word correctly, to lead God's people correctly, even though he is not the king. He is a prophet who is doing a excellent job. So if we looked at the context, that would tell us a little bit about Elisha. It would tell us a little bit about this man, Shahazi. Wouldn't tell us a lot about Naaman. Naaman kind of comes out of nowhere and goes back to where he came from. So that's sort of the context of our, our passage. If we looked at contextual differences. So we're going to take this and we're going to try and come and see how I relate this to today, how I look at this today. Well, we know Israel, divine monarchy, right? They are essentially a theocracy we've talked about. They're supposed to be obedient to God. The whole nation, in theory, has committed themselves to being God's people. Now, how often do we see this? Well, not very. And so I say that because anytime we're studying the Old Testament, I think sometimes there's a tendency to draw this straight line between the leadership of Israel and the leadership of today. Now, granted, leadership in Israel is wicked, corrupt, and misled the people everywhere. And that doesn't sound like the people who lead today at all, right? That's totally a foreign concept to us. That was a joke. Obviously, it sounds exactly like everybody who leads our people today, at least in my perspective. But... Um, but because of that, there's a tendency for some people to just draw the straight line and say, ah, all the teachings that apply to Israel's leaders apply to our leaders. Well, I would hesitate to go a little bit only because Israel, as God's people, were a people who were all committed to God. So if you're going to draw a straight line between the Old and New Testament in terms of people, it should really be between Israel and the church. I'm pretty sure I've taught a lesson on this. If not, I'm sure I will at some point. Paul writes about this extensively. And so I, I just push back a little bit when people draw a line between, well, they're wicked leaders and the teachings of that. That can apply directly today. It kind of can. But just keep in mind, whether we like it or not, not everybody in this country has really signed on to a covenant agreement with God. That's just the truth. We're, we live in a mixed bag. We, we live amongst the enemy in a lot of ways. We are in the world dealing with that. So, yes, sir. Before the law, did they have, did they have things written down to tell them, or did the prophets just have to come and talk? So before the law, like before Moses even? Yeah, right. Between Abraham and Moses, uh, that's a great question. There is almost certainly at least oral laws in the sense that Abraham passed down what was taught to him, what was spoken of. We see a lot of the phrase what was spoken of. But by this time, they do have the law. They certainly have enough to know better at least. <laughs> yeah, um, There's a lot of passages we can look at where they talk about, you know, how much of the law do they have? What did they know? What did they not know? We would say they were under a law of God's law, but not necessarily the law in the written down sense that we know it. But that would, I could answer that more fully. Ask me afterwards if we talk about that more, because I got a lot I want to go through here. Um, but they certainly have the law. They certainly should be obedient to it. And just when we're applying it today, keep in mind, Israel is supposed to be God's people. They're, they are the people who have signed on to this covenant agreement. They're supposed to be faithful to God. 
And like I said, in our culture today, we live in kind of a mixed bag. Some of us live in an agreement where we have decided to be faithful to God, but we also live among people who haven't. So it's, it's a little different, and it's important to note that. I mentioned the, the failure of the kings and the elevation of Elisha and Elisha. When societal leaders abandon the way of the Lord, the role of the prophet is greater, not smaller. I think sometimes there's a tendency that when we see, well, when nobody out there is listening, we feel like, well, I'm just going to sort of withdraw, and I'm going to go around people who agree with me. I'm going to stick with people who are nice to me, who aren't going to persecute me, who aren't going to tell me I'm wrong, and I'm just going to stick to those people. What we see in the Old Testament is when the kings fail, the role of the prophets is bigger, not smaller. The prophets take on a bigger role. The prophets take on more. The prophets become more important because they say, hey, if our leaders are not going to lead us, people got to hear the teaching from somewhere. And so we see the prophets step up, and I would say that, it, 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 that is the role we find ourselves in. Because we know we're in enemy territory. We know we're in a place where not everybody knows the word of God. So that means we should be more vocal about not necessarily condemning people, but more vocal about bringing people to God. So we didn't get to talk a lot about Gehazi, but uh, Gehazi, the servant who uh, tries to monetize or profit off of this miracle in the second half of the chapter, I would say he represents very much the culture we're in today, right? People absolutely see everything for an opportunity for greed, an opportunity for gain, an opportunity to further themselves. And I'll even say this. Even in the church, just like Gehazi served Naaman, he saw this work that uh, this miracle God had done for Naaman. Even in the church, unfortunately, unfortunately, there are people who absolutely only see the church as a way to serve themselves. It's just what happens. There are people who get into positions of leadership or influence who only see that as the way for them to benefit themselves, which is really what Gehazi was doing. So, uh, conclusion from this, a big takeaway from this passage. Our path of seeking God must be the one he dictates, not the one we want, not the one other people want for us. Some major points, just as we're uh, kind of going through again. This is, if I get to get to it, We'll talk a minute about some similar relevant passages. But the major points that I would highlight from those first 14, I think is the section, first 14 verses. Naaman is a powerful Syrian who gets a powerful Syrian general who gets stuck with disease. Number two, in times of chaos, it is this young girl who speaks the truth. It is not kings, but this young maiden who speaks truth to the power of God. And then three, we see Naaman humble himself by following the really the simple the easy instructions of the Lord given through Elisha, his prophet, so that he may be clean. And if I was to summarize, again, we didn't get to read this, but verse 15 through about verse 27, that would kind of be my 3B, still kind of in point 3. Naaman humbles himself and obeys God. Gehazi falls victim to pride, falls victim to greed, does not humble himself, but is, and is cursed. So Naaman is obedient and is healed. Gehazi is not obedient, but is greedy is self-seeking, and he is cursed. Some similar passages. What are some similar passages that, we got five minutes and we'll try and use all of it here, but what are some similar passages you think of when we read about this? Are there any other texts that maybe come to mind? reminds me of the passage in Esther where it says, you know, who knows, but you've come to the kingdom for such a time as I have heard several good lessons, series, and like, uh, I think it was the theme of some lectureship, Bible lectureship last year, for such a time as this, that verse. Very powerful. That's another one I would underline for sure. So Gehazi's greed uh, 
Yeah, it says, you and all of your descendants are cursed with leprosy when you leave it. And he left his father's house. Yep. God leaving his house. So he was leprous from that Yeah, we didn't get to talk about him too much just for the sake of time, but that's uh, the second half of chapter chapter so five here. The, kind of a negative as example. As a result of his grace. Yeah, because he, he sees this work, and so I would compare it very, very similar to Acts 8. 18 through 20, we don't have time to read it, but Acts chapter 8, verse 18 through 20 is Simon the sorcerer. You know that story where he sees Peter doing the work and he says, hey, I think you guys, you guys can sell tickets. Like, this is a good little thing. And Peter says, cursed are you that you would try to take the power of God with money. I think very similar, and I would argue probably some intentional parallels there to what's going on here in 2 Kings 5. He, he tries to profit off of the work God is doing. A couple other passages that I would just note. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Now, those are the two different times Jesus talks about welcoming in children. You know, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be like this little child. If you ought to let the children come to me, for, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This reinforces kind of our point about that young Hebrew girl. Jesus says, man, sometimes it's the children who have the wisdom to know what's the truth is. It's the children who know what's right. Which, again, if I was to reference another passage... Can't find it, but I think it's 1 Timothy 2.14. Yep, no, 1 Timothy 4.12. Got my number switch. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, this is one of the many examples in the scriptures where the truth of God is revealed through children. It's children who can speak that word to the adults who sometimes don't understand. So, real quick, if I will, are there any other comments or thoughts? If not, I'll just give you, again, my four, kind of, I, I built maybe a possible sermon outline I would give from this passage. The world is broken and unable to fix itself by itself. Naaman had a disease, he couldn't do anything about it. Number two, in times of chaos, salvation is available to all. The truth is the truth, regardless of who is speaking it. If someone is up there speaking the Bible, it doesn't matter if they're young, old, gray, red, white, black, or blue. If they're speaking the truth, they're speaking the truth. Number three, Naaman humbles himself, as we pointed out, and he is clean. If we come to know God through faith and through obedience, what happens? We're clean. We're restored. In contrast, if disobedience leads to destruction, can I serve God and serve mammon, as the New Testament says? No. Can I seek my own way instead of God's way? Absolutely not. Can I follow the way of the crowds or the popular opinion instead of God's way? Absolutely not. So... I hope that was helpful. Like I said, I'm going to try to do this as we kind of continue through the different sections of the Bible. as sort of a, if nothing else, just an example study on how we can take some of these passages and try and apply them to our lives today. Any other questions? We've got probably just a few more seconds here before the final bell. What other questions or thoughts? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But one of the things we can learn from uh, the Old Testament is how important it is to go to God before we make big decisions in our lives hmm. and pray yeah. and think about it before doing it instead of, well, I think this is what's best. I'm doing something that's not really. Uh, that's a good point. Or, or, 
Absolutely. I, I think it's better to be humble and do that. Yes. Than to uh, think you can do it and, and get on the wrong side of things. Absolutely. Good observation. Yes, sir. Every job God gives us to do, we think we think it might be impossible, but if we want to do it, He will see that we get it done. Absolutely. I used to have jobs like that on the job. <laughs> this is impossible. I got it done. There you go. Well, thank you, guys.